Good morning. Please open your copy of the scriptures to James chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find our text this morning on page 950. When you explain something, something important, you often come back to the main point over and over again. And as a listener or a reader, you can clue yourself into what the main idea is by what's repeated. When speaking to musicians, you might not know anything about music, but when they keep saying things like chords and notes, you probably get the clue that that's something important to making music. Or if I hear a financial analyst, I know nothing about finance. I, I have no clue what they're talking about. But when they keep saying words like revenue over and over again, I know that's important to the main idea that they're talking about. Or consider when I speak to my two-year-old daughter. I'll say something like, you must obey mommy and daddy. You must obey because it's for your good. If you don't obey, bad things happen. I know you don't understand, but you have to trust me and obey your father. You see, I know that my daughter at the age of two doesn't understand all the consequences of her actions. I know that she doesn't understand all the dangers that are around her, and it's my job as her father to lovingly guide her through that. But it's my hope that after I speak to her, she'll come away understanding one thing, the thing I've repeated, obeying my father is for my good. I love my father, so I must obey him. Now look at what James says in our passage this morning. And let's see if we can pick up on the main thing he says and he's pointing to, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. See, James says five times in two verses the word tempted. So James' main point has something to do with these temptations. And we have to ask ourselves, what is a temptation? Well, in the simplest of terms, temptation is it's any time that we respond to a situation with sin. It's when something comes into our lives, like a trial, and instead of trusting God and obeying faithfully as our Father that loves us, we fall into some form of sin. Now, to understand what James is really talking about, we, we really need to know the entire context of what he set up to this point. James is writing to Christians that are suffering persecution for their faith. They're suffering for their belief that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. They've paid a heavy price for this faith. They've been driven out of the synagogues. They've lost their jobs and they've left homes behind. They're scattered. Many of them have become very poor as a result of following Jesus. And that's their situation. That's where they find themselves. And then they get a letter from James to encourage them. And what's the first thing that James says to these brothers and sisters that are struggling under this hardship in verse 2? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Your trials are joy. Now that might seem harsh to us, 
It might feel unloving to tell someone in the midst of this amount of persecution that, that they're suffering through, that they should just be very happy. But James explains the point of the trials in verses two through four. They are given by God as a way of maturing us. They refine us. Every challenge, every persecution, and everything you suffer through is designed by God to refine you and mature your faith. God has sovereignly orchestrated everything in our life for our good, even the pain. It's all for our good. Now, we need to understand a little bit of Greek here to really understand this passage. And I know that's exactly what everyone wanted on a Sunday morning to wake up and have a Greek lesson. Um, these hardships, these trials that James is telling us about, it's, it's a word in Greek that's parasmos. And I'm going to say that over and over again in this because it, it really helps clarify our thought. Parasmos. These, these trials, they're any hardship in our life, any challenge that tests us. Then in verse 13... James begins talking about the word we translate as temptation. And, there's, and here's the kicker. It's the same word in the Greek. Parasmos. Trial and temptation. Same word with two different meanings depending on the context. You see, a parasmos in itself is like a fork in the road. Whether it's positive or negative, a trial or a temptation completely depends on your response to it. It's the response that is right or wrong. It's the response to the trial, this test, that makes it either obedience or rebellion. It would be a little more accurate to think of this, the negative response here that James talks about, starting in verse 13, as temptation to sin, and not just temptation itself, because we need to keep in view it's, it's our response to it, not the thing itself. So if you pass this test or prosmos, it was a trial and you, it was for your good. If you fail, it was a temptation to sin due to your own sinfulness. Now James tells us in verse 4 that trials are intended by God to make us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. God sovereignly brings these things into the Christian's life for our good. Remember, though, the trial or prosmos itself is just the test. If we respond faithfully in obedience to God, we successfully endure the hardship that leads to the blessing that God intends. Blessings like spiritual endurance, holiness, wisdom, and strengthened faith. But if we respond to these hardships by doubting and disobeying God, then the same situation has become a temptation to sin. We must understand we've been tempted or enticed to sin in that situation. The situation itself is not sinful. Trial or temptation, it's a fork in the road, two sides of the same coin. So James says that God has sovereignly aligned every challenge and every hardship for our good. And trials are indeed a joy because of the blessing that comes when we respond to them faithfully. But James knows that no one's perfect. No Christian is going to pass every trial. Even as new creations with the Holy Spirit, we still fight our sins every day of our lives. So James now has to address the problem of when believers allow trials, prasmos, to turn into temptations to sin. And he does this by calling our attention to 
a deeper problem, not the situation itself. It's a deeper problem when we sin. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Or another way of translating is stop being deceived. He says, you've fallen for a lie and you need to stop it, being deceived by it. So we have to ask, what are we being deceived by? What's he talking about? Well, in one sense, all sin is believing a lie that the sin itself will bring us some form of pleasure that's better than what God is giving us. Second, when we've sinned, we find all sorts of excuses and circumstances to blame it on. We'll attempt to place the guilt on anyone and everyone as long as it's not number one, as long as it's not me. And ultimately, we accuse God because all complaint about what God has allowed in our lives is an accusation that's aimed directly at the character of God and his goodness. So when you fall into temptation and begin thinking that that way, you are deceived. You're believing a lie. And starting in verse 13, James corrects all three of those lies we tell ourselves when we are tempted to sin during a trial. He corrects three lies that you believe during your temptations. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. James 1, verses 13 through 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray before we continue. Father, we come to you humbled at your glory, your majesty, all the wonderful things that you've brought into our lives. Father, we ask forgiveness for the way that we have sinned and misused those things and twisted it to our sin, our desires. Father, I pray that uh, your spirit would be with us this morning and help this truth to sink in. Help this truth to hit the heart. Do the thing that I can't do with my own words here. Lord, you glorify yourself and change your people this morning. You bring yourself the glory and expose this truth to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So lie number one, we tell ourselves in verse 13, God is the source. God is the source. See, when we sin, it's the most natural thing in the entire world to try to immediately excuse it. It's so natural, it's so common, and it's so wicked. You see, we try to justify our wrong by blaming it on other things because we, in our sinful pride, want to think the best of ourselves. We want so badly to think we're so good that we actually deceive ourselves into believing it. But that leaves us with a problem. 
If we actually believe we're good, we have to answer a question. Where did that temptation, where did that impulse to sin come from? We know we, shouldn't, we should love our family and not say harsh things, but we still say that hateful word. We know we shouldn't look at that video, but we click on it anyway. We know what is wrong, but we still do it. We still sin. And that sin, that impulse, has to come from somewhere. And we fall for the lie that it's outside of ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that it must just be the situation or the people that God has brought into our lives. You think to yourself, maybe, this trial is too difficult for me. And actually, probably no one could handle this, what I'm going through. This pain, this challenge, this trial, it's not my fault. I'm just the victim of the circumstances that I'm in. And come to think of it, God is sovereign. And he did allow these circumstances in my life. So it makes sense. It's God's fault. After all, he is sovereign. He brought or allowed it. And that's, the, that's what caused me to sin, so he's the source. And just like that, you've deceived yourself. And we must remember these trials, these situations, are just a fork in the path. It's a parasmos. God brings it or allows it sovereignly. And if we endure, we go on to the path of blessing that God intends for us. But if we turn the situation into an opportunity to sin, we are the ones to blame. Now, maybe for you it's not quite so obvious, so overt, so boisterous. God, you did this. Maybe for you it's something different. You're being faithful. You're seeking God and fighting sin. You're trying to endure. You're seeking to live obediently by God's word, but in a moment of weakness, you can feel it. You can feel yourself starting to give in and trying to justify a sin that you want to take pleasure in. In a moment, you're fighting it a little less hard. And you find yourself thinking, it's just a small thing. Everyone does it. And I'm being so faithful in so many other ways. God knows I can't handle this. He'll understand. After all, he knows all the things he's brought into my life. And just like that, again, you subtly accuse God. He brought this. The blame lies on him. In your mind, you shift the blame from yourself to your situations to God. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when we hear ourselves thinking or saying these things. We're not the first ones that have. When Adam and Eve are confronted with their sin, Adam says to God in Genesis, the woman that you gave me, Lord, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam begins to justify himself by saying, it was her. And then he follows the blame chain up just a little further. You put her in my life. The accusation is clear. God, you tempted me to sin by putting these circumstances here. And what does Eve do? In verse 13, the very next verse, she says, she puts the blame on the serpent and says, the serpent deceived me. Can you hear the excuses just dripping off of their lips? God, you created these things. Something that you put in my life deceived me. God, you brought this and it's your fault. Ultimately, every attempt that we make to excuse sin, either before, during, or after we sin, is an accusation against God. 
It's an accusation against God, his character, his goodness. And it all follows a blame chain that if you take it far enough, always implicates God as the source. We must remember these trials, these things that are brought, just a fork in the path. And God brings it or allows it, but if we turn the situation into an opportunity for sin, we are the ones to blame. The Bible's clear. God is sovereign at all times, in all things. But even though he allows mankind to express their sinful rebellion for a time without immediate judgment that they all deserve, we all deserve, he doesn't cause that evil. He's not the author of evil. But he does use it sovereignly to his purposes in our lives. Consider Christ on the cross. The crowd put to death the very God of life because they hated him. They reviled him. There's never been a more evil act in all of history, but God used that situation, those circumstances that Christ was faithful through to bring about the greatest good imaginable. He saved his people from their sins and reconciled us to himself for all eternity. God allows the fork we bring the disobedience. Now, James knows that we're, pre- we're prone to react in, in wrong ways with wrong thoughts, and he knows that after saying that these trials are from God, he has to correct it immediately. He has to correct our thoughts and our attitudes that try to use sinfully the truth of God's sovereignty as an excuse. It's an excuse to blame God. See if you can pick up on the very, very subtle way that James helps us to correct this in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. It's nothing vague. There's nothing complicated. There is nothing subtle here. This is how you correct it. James just comes right out and says it. Don't do it. Stop it. Don't allow it. Now, we have to be careful here. James is not saying that we are never to mention or express our difficulties. What he is saying is we must never complain about them. We must never accuse God. But that does not, ex- uh, does not preclude us from going to a brother or sister and asking for prayer during these trials. After all, we must weep with those that weep. But we must never complain against God. James clearly tells us, don't let anyone say this. And this is not just someone saying this out loud to others. This is also someone saying this to themselves. Don't even think it. But James doesn't just stop doing it. He doesn't stop at saying stop doing it. He gives a reason to explain why we can't say this. He proves that God is not at fault for our temptations. Look again at verse 13. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. This argument is so simple, so elegant, and so profound. Just follow the logic with me for a moment. A successful temptation, a a, a parasmos that can successfully cause a person to do something evil requires that the person being tested has some form of moral flaw. 
For any situation to be able to cause God to do something evil, there would have to be something wrong in God's character that makes him able to fail. Consider the fact you sin because you are a sinner. You are by nature morally imperfect. If you were perfect, you would not sin. Simple. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is God. And he is perfect. Therefore, when he came in human flesh, he did not sin. As the author of Hebrews tells us, Christ was tested. Same word, parasmas. He was tested in every way like us, but without sin. He has no spot or blemish. And that's what makes him able to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. You see, James is pointing us here to who God is. What his character is, God is perfectly holy. He cannot be tempted with evil because there is nothing in him that makes it even allowable in the first place. And since he is perfectly holy, holy, it's impossible for him to desire evil in anyone else. God cannot desire the thing that is completely against his very nature. So it's impossible that God could be the source of of an impulse to sin. James proves with this argument that God is not the source of our temptations. But if God is not to be blamed, as James has just proven, then what's the source? Whose fault is it? And James has an answer for us. You are. James rightly holds us accountable by showing that the source is from within. He now corrects a second lie we tell ourselves My temptations are from outside myself, so I'm not to blame. Lie number two, I'm not to blame. It's not me. I didn't do it. If James just leaves his argument at verse 13, he knows our uh, our wickedness will take the opportunity to find somewhere else to place the blame. For instance, poor upbringing. When you're tempted, you might say to yourself, It's understandable. It's even allowable to some extent to do this because of what I've been through and what I've suffered. No one else has been through that. Maybe you convince yourself it's bad luck of some sort, as if God's not actually sovereign. Catch yourself saying or thinking, my circumstances are nothing but a series of, of unfortunate events. And I don't really have any implications for sin. It's just the hand I was dealt, and I'm doing the best I can. Or maybe you blame it on a personality quirk. It's just how I am. I joke and I say harsh things. It's because it's the way I was made. I can't help it. It's outside of my control. Or the ever popular, Satan made me do it. See, we will find anything to shift the blame away from ourselves. Yes, there are circumstances. There are circumstances in our lives are challenging and even very painful. There are many trials that we are we're tempted very strongly during. And Satan, though very real and very powerful, is only able to place the things or the situations in your life that may tempt you. But let's be very clear. You are the one that sins when you take the bait. And that's the imagery James now uses in verse 14. 14. He takes an analogy from fishing and hunting to show us very clearly that everyone is lured and enticed to sin because of their own desire. He says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed 
by his own desire. No one is excluded here. Each person has the same problem. It's something deep within you. It's your own desire, James tells us. So what is this desire? What's he talking about? Well, the word here in the Greek can also be translated as, as a craving or a lust. It's a, it's a moment of sudden and intense longing for something that, and where you find yourself saying, I just have to have that. I have to do this thing. I need this or I won't be fulfilled. Now we need to be careful again. Our desires are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves. Desires can be neutral or even good. Like a groom, when he sees the bride on the wedding day, it is right that a husband and wife desire one another. Or when parents first hold their, their baby in their arms and they have this overcoming sense of urge to do anything and everything to protect and provide for this little delicate being. And think about when we see the majesty of God and display in his creation by seeing something like Niagara Falls or, or the Grand Canyon or we look through a telescope and we see a planet or, or a galaxy, something in the cosmos that displays his, his majesty. In those moments, it is good for you to feel a desire well up in your innermost being with an intense need that must express praise to God. Desire is not always bad. These are all motivations from right desires. What James has in view here is not the right desire. The desires he talks about are the ones that lure us from somewhere. They draw us out of safety. They draw us away from the steadfastness that he mentions in the previous passage. It's like a fish safe in the rocks and suddenly sees something flicker in his vision. And suddenly, just like that, He's got to go to it. He's got to investigate. He's got to eat it. There's a desire that suddenly comes upon it and attempts to draw it away from safety. And we see this all the time. It's what every parent dreads. You walk into a store and abruptly your child sees a toy and completely melts down into a tantrum. They want the toy and they think, Daddy no longer has my best interests in mind. I can't trust my father who is lovingly telling me to obey right now. In that moment, they must have that toy and they'll do everything in their power to get it. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting something nice. And it almost seems trivial when we consider a child throwing a tantrum for a toy. Almost it's, it's, it's harmless because it's a childish thing. It's just a silly thing kids do, we excuse. But every time a craving takes us captive, every time we believe we must have something to feel fulfilled at the cost of everything else, we do the same as that child. We think we know what's best. We stop trusting God. We stop trusting that he's a good father who will give us bountifully, and we stop obeying his word. The trap's been set. We've been lured into it by our own desires, and then it closes in on us. Don't you see? When we take the reins to get what we suddenly desire, we've been drawn away from safety. We've taken the bait. 
Now James suddenly switches the, the analogy here. He goes from a, a metaphor of, of, of a snare to conception and birth. The desire is now in verse 15 pictured as a seductress who's, who's luring a person to her bed and as a result conceives. In verse 15 he says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, when studying this passage, many people try to take James' analogy and see in it a specific reference to a specific series of stages of falling into temptation. And there is great benefit in thinking through all the possible ways we fail. After being drawn out by, by our desire into a temptation, the temptation kind of moves into our, our emotions. We desire it more. And there's a next step where, where you plan it and you think about it. The sin grows in your mind. And then you begin to toy with the idea of what it would feel like if you actually were able to enjoy it. And it moves closer to your will. And then you suddenly start acting on that plan. Until eventually you're completely ensnared in the sin and suffering the consequences of it. Now again, there is great benefit in knowing the wickedness of your own heart more and meditating on how you can fight sin at every possible step of the way that you're tempted in every, every part of your being. But this doesn't fit what James is talking about here very well. James' analogy begins after we've been lured and snared. Also, it's not James' argument in the, in the section to describe every stage of every way we can be led into sin. He's not giving a treatise on the stages of sin here. And we can appreciate the many, many godly brothers and sisters and the great meditations on this topic. And we should meditate on how our whole being is, is involved with turning towards a sin and, and use that to fight. That's right and good. But I don't think that's James' point. And just like any analogy, we cannot press it too far. His point is to show that the story of sin always unfolds in a predictable way. The baby is conceived. It develops inside and grows. It's born and it grows up to maturity. There's no surprise here. The order doesn't change. A full-grown baby doesn't just magically appear in front of you. Everyone knows where babies come from. It doesn't come from outside. 100% of the time, it starts within you and leads to death. That's his point. We can't be deceived into thinking that that impulse to sin in a trial comes from outside of ourselves. It absolutely always begins deep within you. Now, some sins, if not restrained, can lead to physical death as a direct result, like substance abuse or violence. But James in here has in view a spiritual death. Just like Paul tells the Romans, the wages of sin is death, all sin, every single one, deserves the penalty of death, the soul's separation from God for all eternity. Every human being on the planet, by their own nature, rebels against God. Every one of us has a nature that desires to make ourselves and our pleasure the primary thing. We want to be in control at all times. We want others to serve us. We want a life of ease with no restraints. And we seek our pleasure at the cost of others. 
In short, we sin. God has called every person to obey him in love and to love one another, and we fail. We sin. And all sin will be judged by God. Now, maybe you've never heard the good news that is in Christ. There's salvation from the punishment and death if you believe in him. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you say you're a Christian, but you've never trusted Christ with your life. You don't repent of your sins. You don't fight temptations. I must lovingly point you to James' warning. Your sin will lead to death. You may put a a thin layer of morality over your sin, but you never desire to live a holy life. You're completely comfortable embracing your temptations without the slightest shudder of fear at a holy God. Your sin may be hidden from everybody in this room, but your heart is bare before the Lord. And you'll give an account of that sin. Every temptation that you've relished giving into, it 100% of the time leads to death. Now, I know this is hard to hear. No one wants to hear they're, they're not a good person, but there is very good news. The warning James has here is for your blessing. God wants you to see your rebellious desire in the clearest of terms. It will lead to judgment and death, but there is hope God has made a way in Christ for you to be reconciled with him for all eternity. Christ came to pay for the sins of everyone who believes in him. He lived the only truly perfect life. He alone perfectly entrusted himself to the plan of the God the Father in every difficulty and trial. And Christ, the perfect Holy One of God, laid his life down for all those who would believe in him and trust in him for their salvation. You see, there's no escape. Your sin will lead to judgment and death, but if you repent of your sins and follow Christ, that judgment and death that you deserve will be placed on him. If you would only believe, all of your sins would be made clean. All the penalty that rightly falls on your shoulders will be placed on him. He takes your judgment, judgment for your sin, and you take his reward for his perfection. You receive eternal joy at his side if you would only believe and trust in Christ. Follow him and turn from your sin. Repent today. The Lord is good and he will not turn away anyone that comes to him. For the believer here, James' warning is meant to be a gripping picture When you take a step back and you see where all the temptation leads, the price that is ultimately paid, there's nothing to be desired about it. If the fish saw the hook, wouldn't bite the bait, wouldn't get caught. No matter how much the desire promises life and joy, it only leads to one conclusion, misery and death. We should be repulsed by the fact that the desires that we have caused our Lord pain. James is showing us that hook. He's pointing us to the truth that our depravity is within. Do not fall for the lie that your temptations come from outside. Don't be deceived. It comes from your own heart, James tells us. Now James corrects one last 
lie that we tell ourselves. I deserve better than what I got. I deserve better than what I got. Even after James has proven that God is good and that your sin is from within, someone here is going to say, some reader is going to think, okay, I see how God is good and can't tempt anyone with evil. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I'm prone to wrong actions and thoughts, but I doubt God's ability or desire to actually give me good things. I mean, when I look at all the difficulties and trials and hardship and pain in my life, all the things that I've given up, I just see bad. I don't see the good. Maybe God doesn't intend evil, but this sure doesn't seem good to me. I know we've all heard this or thought it at some point in our walk with Christ. This lie might be the most common one that we hear or feel. That the things that I want are better than what God has given me. I deserve better. And the accusation is that God might not intend evil, but he doesn't seem to give what's good. Consider you. Maybe you look at your job and think, it would be so much better if I didn't have to work so much or if I made more money. It's not good, you claim. You might be tempted to look at your relationships and say, if only my children behaved better and obeyed. If only my spouse was a little more supportive. If you're single, you might catch yourself thinking, if only I was married, all these temptations would go away. You might look at an illness and be tempted to think, God doesn't care. And on and on and on, and every single time we think this way, the accusation is loud and clear. God doesn't love me. God, this is your fault. God, you don't give me good things. So what does James say to this? Look at verse 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Don't believe these lies. If anything is good, it comes from God. Or to word it in another way, if God didn't give it, it's not good. You must understand, if he hasn't given it to you, it's because you are better off without that thing at this point in your life. And maybe for the rest of your life. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and claim that I know every aspect of the infinite mind of God and his provision in our life, his providence. But consider the providence of God in your life. Consider your job. If you had more money and more free time, you may have less guarding against other temptations, ways of spending that money and free time on your own lusts and desires. Work is good, and God may occupy our time so that there's less room in, for those desires. It's for your good. God has given good gifts. Your children and your spouse are meant to be a sanctifying influence in your life. When you see them sin, it should drive you to Christ for mercy. To you single people, don't think that if you cannot be obedient to God right now in your singleness, that you'll magically, after you say your vows, have no more temptations. Not having a spouse may be the Lord's grace in your life to keep you from sinning against someone else. Your illness 
It'll make you lean more on God because you will sense your need of him, your need to be strengthened by him. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul tells us that during a trial, he asked God to remove it. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove it. And what's God say to him in 12.9? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Remember Joseph in Genesis. His brothers plot to kill him. He's sold into slavery. He's wrongly accused of assaulting his master's wife. He's unjustly thrown in jail for years and forgotten by everyone. Talk about a hard job, unloving family, unfair situations, and loneliness. But God through those difficulties and his faithfulness, worked a miraculous salvation for his people. In the end, Joseph is remembered. He's given great authority over the most powerful nation on earth. His own family comes to him unwittingly to beg him for food. And what's his response to his brothers at the end of it all? Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Brothers and sisters, we don't know every intention of God with our suffering and challenges. Yes, God brings painful things into our lives that we would not choose. Yes, God in his sovereignty allows for the sin of others to be a sanctifying influence for our good. Like Joseph rightly says, they mean it for evil, but God intends it for good. We don't know how God will use every situation. But don't be deceived. Everything that the Lord brings and gives to you is for your good. And James goes a little further. Further than just stating that this is true, he proves it. Based on what God has done. Look again at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Father of Lights points us to two things. God and his power as the creator. That he created the lights, the most magnificent things in all the heavens, the most magnificent things that we can imagine. Planets, stars, galaxies, the entire universe. And second, it shows his sovereignty. He didn't just create it. He holds it up. By his own power, he is in control of the cosmos. But these massive, beautiful works of God's creation, they're not steady. They turn through the night sky. They change their positions as they revolve and turn. One day they seem more or less glorious than the next. For instance, the moon. One night it's bright and full. And on another, it's completely dark. Or as James puts it, They have variation and shadow due to change. But James tells us God's not like that. God doesn't change like the heavens do. God's character, power, wisdom, glory, love, authority, and goodness have no variation. God declares to the prophet Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. God's works reflect his character, is what James is pointing us to. If God cannot change, the quality of his gifts doesn't change either. 
they are as wise, as glorious, as loving, and as good as he is. They're perfect from one day to the next. You must understand that you, as his child, only get good and perfect gifts. God only gives you the best, and the best is all that God gives you. And to prove that, James reminds us that God has given us something far more glorious and magnificent than the stars and the galaxies. Look at verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, unlike a man's desire that brings forth death, as James has showed in verse 15, God's will brings forth our salvation, our good. It's like Paul says to the Ephesians, God has blessed us in, us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And James here tells us that this salvation we're experiencing is just the first fruits. It's a promise of things to come. As good as being saved is in this life with all its blessings, it's just a foretaste of heaven. The goodness that God is going to lavish on his children for all eternity. Church, how can we question the goodness of God? How can we question the goodness of God's will and intention when it was God's will to save us through the hearing of the gospel? How can we doubt that since God has already given us the greatest things, he'll ever hold back good things? As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him gloriously give us all things? See, By giving us the best, God has already proven to you that he will give you everything good and only what is good. Brothers and sisters, we must trust our Father and not be deceived. When we, as God's children, are so abundantly and continually showered with the most gracious, valuable, and satisfying blessings our Heavenly Father can bestow on us, why Should any evil thing have the slightest attraction to us? The temptation's often strong. Strong, tempting to believe that God hasn't treated you the way you deserve. But we need to praise God that indeed he hasn't. Instead, he poured the wrath that was due you on Christ in your place. We must remember that our challenges and hardships are brought into our lives for our good. And there's a fork in the road. We can go down the path to temptation by being deceived with these lies or we can choose the path of obedience and blessing. We can entrust ourselves to our Father just like Christ did in every trial. He was tested in every way just like we are but without sin. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When we feel these temptations, we must look to the glory of God revealed in the gospel and remind ourselves that our Father is good and he will only ever give us good and perfect gifts. We must entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father in every trial, just as our Lord Jesus Christ did. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Good to us beyond all measure, beyond our ability to comprehend and understand. 
Father, we praise you for the goodness displayed in, in the gospel. Lord, we praise you for the good gifts that you've given us, Lord. Forgive us for falling for these lies and we pray that your spirit today would correct these in our hearts and minds, that we would be a people that constantly and continuously adore you for the goodness that you've given and never doubt that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.